Do you think it's possible to be your own therapist? Oh, that's an interesting question. everyone and welcome to this episode of the Social Work Tutor Podcast. Today on the show, I am joined by Ange Martin, all the way from Australia. Ange, before I ask you to introduce myself, I, I, I have to mention this to the listeners. In the two and a half years we have been doing this podcast, you are our first ever Australian guest. So welcome. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you so much. That's quite a privilege to be your first Australian social worker on. You are, you are. So please do do your country proud. You are a trailblazer. You are heralding <laughs> the way of the Australian nation. Anyway, my friend, would you like to introduce yourself to the social work world and tell them a little bit about who you are and what brought you into the social work tutor studio this fine day? My name is Ange. I'm an accredited mental health social worker here in Canberra, Australia. I currently work in private practice, which I've done full-time for about 10 years. And um, I work with individuals across the lifespan, couples and families. I have a particular interest in working with adolescents. um, And I've worked in a range of government and non-government organisations prior to doing private practice. I really enjoy... Um, supervision and I think that social work is a brilliant career and I love having an opportunity to discuss social work so I'm really excited to be here and to talk to you about social work. Well welcome to the show my friend you have found a home with with you have found a home here with me my friend. Wonderful. I, I always kick off with the same question when we have guests on the show because I, I'm I'm always very keen and our listeners are always very keen to see what brought people into this profession because we have a wide and varied range of people join us in social work. So tell me a little bit about your journey. What made you become a social worker and why did you want to be a social worker? Well, I always think I was probably destined to be a social worker, but I kind of fell into the career. So my experience was I was born in the UK. I moved to Australia when I was four, uh, lived in a country town and I kind of went to school there. I think that I had these characteristics, which I think many social workers would probably relate to growing up. So things like I was good at connecting with people and I was a good listener um, people would come and talk to me about their problems um, and I could always see things from these different perspectives. So I think that was just part of my personality type. When I um, finished school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I, um, you know, did some tourism and some hospitality. Like many other Australians, I went to the UK and worked in a pub there. And then I came back and I was about 21 and I thought, look, I've really got to be doing something. I need to kind of get a bit of a career happening. I thought I would do psychology because I didn't really know about social work. And also I just wanted to do counselling. That was what really appealed to me. 
I decided to dip my toe in by going to, um, it was called uh, CIT and I guess the equivalent is probably college in the UK. And I did a um, double diploma in community welfare and youth work. And then there was this awesome opportunity that came up at my college and that was that they were doing a pilot program. We could do an advanced diploma, which would be university subjects. And then we, yeah. if we passed, we could enter directly into university, which um, knocked some time off the degree, but also was a good way to test if it was, you know, what we wanted to do. Did you get sort of credits towards your final, your final degree then? And by doing that, did that sort of give you a, a advanced credits in terms of the degree itself? Yeah, it was like a pathway to get in. And it um, yeah. was instead of, I guess, doing additional studies, it yes. just got us straight into uni, um, which was a really, which was really awesome. I think because I looked into social work, I was like, actually, this fits me far better than psychology. <laughs> I love that it's yeah, holistic. Yeah. It just the biopsychosocial model just works perfectly for me. So it was a really good fit. And it was a really great opportunity to get into um, into that area. And were you happy with that decision? Do you do you look back with fondness that you made the right call? Or do you wish you'd done something else now you've been a social worker for over a decade? Oh, I love social work. I think that it is just the best career for me. There could be nothing that I would enjoy doing more than what I do. Brilliant, brilliant. So how did you, because you spent some time in the UK, didn't you, before you became a social worker? T- tell us a bit about that, because I always love, it's a bit selfish here, but I always love to hear what the perception is of the UK, our systems, our culture, our society, from people that have grown up in a different country and culture and then have returned to that, that the home country. So what were your experience of the UK and what was your time here like? Um, I lived in a little village, excuse me, in the Northwest. And um, most people had never met an Australian before. So I told everybody my uncle was Steve Irwin. I love it. I love it. Um, I, like most Australians, worked in a pub. There was no, um, as I said, no other Australians in the area. I had a lot of family. So I lived with my grandmother and I, I was quite young. So I enjoyed, you know, the social life of the UK and um, the close pro- uh, the closeness of other countries to be able to travel around a bit while I was there. Nice, nice. So let's just come on to some of your current social work experiences then. Mm-hmm. Um, what's social work like in your territory and in your sort of county level right now, how how are things going for you? What what's social work like in your part of the world right now? Well, in the area that I live in, I think it's very much back to business. COVID has significant impacts, but that was more uh, last year. A lot of social workers are still reflecting on this, though, and the impact that it has on their service delivery and also the issues that arose for clients. So I think that the COVID situation was probably the most significant in social work in recent recent times for us. And and I think that the different areas in Australia would probably have different experiences as they're still different states still going into lockdown at different periods of time. 
Is there, a, is there a wide difference in how social work is practiced from state to state in Australia? Because the reason I ask this question is here in England, where I've practiced, I've worked in various different local authorities, mostly in, in, in the northeast, but I've also worked in, uh, in one that was in the south of England. And no matter where I've worked, things are more or less the same. My practice changes slightly based upon how effective that local authority is. You know, is that local authority struggling or are they doing well? Does that local authority have additional resources or do do they not? But generally speaking, the tools of my trade and the structures, boundaries, guidance, legislation, and so on is the same. So I see very little difference. I practice more or less the same wherever I work. There's just some little quirks of that local authority. They might do panels different. They may have different paperwork. They may have different sort of um, administrative routines and so on. What's it like in Australia? Is it is it like that that we have in England that is very little difference or is it perhaps more akin with the US model whereby it's very different on a state-by-state basis and states more or less regulate their own profession quite independently of other states? How does it work in Australia? Um, We have the... uh, I would say that overall it is quite similar in each state. We have an Australian Association of Social Workers which is a national body that it's not compulsory to join. You can choose to join. There's state branches, but overall it's pretty similar. I guess differences would be that states run the health system, but again, it's the social work system and how people work is very similar in each state. I think it more is around the differences are just in the organisations. So I've worked for a range of government and non-government organisations and I think that's where probably the key difference is is rather than uh, the way in which we practice social work in each state. How much professional autonomy do you get? Do you get a lot of professional autonomy if you're working in a a statute role for an organisation? What's the culture like in the roles you've been in? Are you allowed to sort of shape and shift your own personal practice as a practitioner to suit the needs of the clients and perhaps suit your own skills and strengths? Or is it quite regimented? Is every social worker expected to sort of approach things in a same standardised and formulaic manner? I think that there's definitely preferred methods of treatment. So I've worked for different organisations where um, their preference is for you to do CBT. There is flexibility in that, but that is the preference of what you do. Whereas other organisations that I've worked for are more happy to just trust in, you know, the therapeutic intervention that's going to be the most successful. You develop your own care plan. I think... Um, for me, it's re- I work in private practice because I like the freedom to be able to really uh, work for myself, develop my own care plans and have a bit more flexibility. But, yeah, I guess I've had uh, both sides of the coin in, in different experiences of what that looks like. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the private practice model then because here in England and in the UK in general, 
the private you can be an independent social worker but independent social workers in this country tend to be quite specialized in the fact that what independent social workers will do is they will write assessments when they are commissioned to by a local authority and the vast majority of those times when a local authority is in care proceedings they are looking at proceedings in court and for whatever reason the local authority is either unable to do a specialized assessment or is perhaps deemed to have been biased or impartial or perhaps they have done an assessment it wasn't seen fit for purpose and in those situations the court uh, perhaps the children's guardian parents solicitors will ask for an independent social worker come in to undertake a parent assessment, undertake a specialist risk assessment, a connected carers assessment, a special guardianship assessment, whatever sort of assessment it may be. They will ask an independent social worker to come in just to do a bespoke bit of work. So how does independent practice work in Australia? What what sort of things will an independent practitioner do? How are you paid? How, How does that work really? Okay, well, it's quite different, I think, from that UK model. Often um, social workers that that are in private practice will be doing individual counselling or family counselling or couples counselling. The court system, often the assessments are done by psychologists in saying that social workers could do an assessment if somebody wanted to go to a drug and alcohol rehab facility or something like that. But overall, most social workers in private practice are doing therapy. therapy. Um, How people, I guess, get accreditation for that is you have to have had two years post-grad in mental health services and you have to go through an accreditation process and apply, have referees, uh, they give you case scenarios and you say how you would work with the individual and just proving your skills and experience in the area. It it then allows you to be able to access um, basically our Medicare system, which yes. is, I think, the equivalent to NHS, yeah. provides a rebate for clients that come in and have counselling. They just ah, have to go to their GP, right, right. get a mental health care plan. They get up to 10 sessions a year. I think because of COVID, it's up to 20 this year. Yes. And then they'll see their social worker and they will get a rebate uh, back. <laughs> So it makes it kind of more accessible for people. Ah. So rather than, so what would happen here here in the UK is there wouldn't necessarily be that link between the National Health Service, in your case Medicare, paying a private practitioner. Generally speaking, that service is commissioned by the NHS themselves en masse or those are people employed directly via the NHS. So it's a slightly different model than the same services there. So how do you get your referrals? Do the referrals, do clients get signposted to you and self-refer or do the referrals get sort of handled by an agent or a central referral system? How do clients get allocated to you and end up being supported by you? How does that work, Ange? The referral system is that um, I guess some GPs will refer to me because they, um, you know, they've 
I guess, heard about me or they've had interactions with me in the past. Because I worked for different organisations, they will still refer to me. And um, so I get lots of referrals that way. Some people um, self-refer. And then because I've been quite involved in DBT practice, I will get a lot of people that are referred because maybe they didn't want to do a group, but they want to have some individual therapy. So they will get referred to me. There's a massive demand for therapy and like I've never had to advertise or I don't have a website because there's just so many people that are requiring counselling. Why is that, Ange? Why do you think why do you think there's such a demand for that counsel at the moment? Do you think that we are seeing more societal issues that dictate it? Do you think people are better at diagnosing these issues? Because this is something that I'm I'm seeing when I speak to friends all over the world. Why do you think we're seeing such a demand? Or is it is it becoming more culturally acceptable? Are people who perhaps wouldn't have wanted counsel in the past and, and felt some sort of stigma? Being on the front line yeah. in that role, why do you think it is? I think that um, you've touched on a few of the main points that I think, which would be um, culturally, I think the stigma of mental health has reduced. I think younger generations are more help-seeking. I think that there's better knowledge and understanding about mental health. And I think that there's more services that are available, which highlight and bring to um, the forefront the need for support, which leads people to engage with counselling services. Because mm. it's, it's something I've been keen to work out for quite a while. And I've read a lot of research around this in... Is society, is there something about society in the way it's going, which is driving more people towards being diagnosed with depression, with anxiety, with self-harm, with psychosis? Because if we have a look, if we have a look at data, all of those things are going up across the board. All of the all of the diagnosed mental health needs are going up equally at the same time we are seeing an increase in how many people are medicated for depression, for anxiety, for psychosis, for personality disorders, and so on. We are seeing diagnosed mental health issues increase rapidly at the same time as medication. I've always tried to work out what that is, and there are two schools of thought on it, and and the evidence for both is there. One is that we are getting better at a society, a better as a society at diagnosing people's additional needs. And that same sort of trend would indicate that as well, people are more forthcoming in opening up about their needs and their wants and their feelings, because thankfully the stigma is reducing in terms of mental health. We, we've got a lot of celebrities that are coming out to talk about mental health issues. There's a lot of press attention, which, of course, is all positive. On the flip side, there is a school of thought which says there is something about modern culture that is driving people towards suicide, self-harm, depression, anxiety. 
And we see certain communities where there was a great, we can take this back to a sociological theory. If you think about Durkheim's theory of anime, which, you know, was, you know, we're, look, we're going about seven decades since that, you know, that mm-hmm. theory was posited. And, and many people are theorizing that we are actually living in a state of anime right now that because we a lot of people have lost the things that tie them together we're no longer tied together by common religion many people we're no longer tied together by common workplaces we're no longer tied together by a sense of community that exists within our towns cities and villages so because mm. of that as we've lost the fabric of society there is an undercurrent of significant issues coupled with social media and the pressure that that brings that that's driving people towards mental health issues and i don't know which one it is <laughs> i haven't got i haven't got an idea because uh, I, as i said there are compelling schools of thought for each one are you swayed either way or do you somewhat sit in the middle and you, you can't quite put your finger on it being on the front line why do you think it is Oh, look, to be honest with you, I do sit in the middle. I think that there is elements in today's society which do influence an increase in mental health issues for young people, particularly yes. around social media platforms. In saying that, though, and, uh, you know, in saying that, the research certainly indicates that there is an increase of young people that are identifying that they have mental health il- illness but I think we can't just look at that question in isolation because there's so many factors that contribute to that whether that's you know that our society is much more forthcoming in talking about these issues or even if we look at um, generations in the past the ability to be able to discuss their feelings and emotions and access services was significantly reduced as to what it is now. And also the research and the effort that goes into the research, I think, has increased over the years as well. I think that there are certain trends that I've certainly noticed throughout my career, and that probably is in relation to self-harming behaviour. There's been significant increases from when I first started working to what there is now. It's quite common within adolescent groups. And I um, still think the role of social media in regards to young people feeling excluded or fear of missing out or comparing themselves to others and having body image issues or, of course, cyberbullying are all factors which are really influencing mental health, particularly for young people today. What do you think the impact of COVID's going to have on young people in particular? And and the reason I ask this is I I work with many children who have spent more or less a full year out of education and being home educated. And I I wonder what all of that time being locked up in family homes, all of that time spent on YouTube and Xbox and PlayStation and not having connections with peers. Yes, of course, I know that impacts everybody. I know that impacts adults and it impacts children alike. But I I wonder what the damage could be to children in particular, given their brains developing, given the formation, losing a year that they 
won't get back. And, and and I like to think of certain scenarios for certain groups of people to show just the impact of this. So, you know, I'm in my late 30s now. The past year hasn't affected me too much. Don't get me wrong. Work's been more difficult. It's been hard not seeing friends and family as much. But my day-to-day life, being married, having two children, going to work, living in the same home, hasn't changed too much. That may be a sign that I'm just quite anti antisocial, to be honest, Ange. <laughs> that may be a sign that I'm just quite boring. But when I think about young people at certain significant waypoints in their life, certain milestones. So I, I kind of think of, of the young people who are 15, 16, who lost that high school graduation year. Mm. I think of the young people who were 18, 19, who lost that first year university freshers experience. My first year at university was one of the best years of my life. To have that freedom, meeting new people, it was amazing. And to know that that's been taken away from so many young people, you know, other young people who may have taken a year out between university and starting their careers and traveling the world, you've lost all of those moments. And you know what it's like, Ange, when you, when you get older and you have commitments, it's harder and harder to go back because as you get a job, as you get a mortgage, as you get car payments, as you get married, as you have children, you accrue things which you're committed to and you don't have the freedom to do these things. So I worry about the impact that this lockdown and this lost year has had on people. Again, being on the front line and seeing that directly, what what are you seeing? And when you look ahead to the future, what do you predict is going to happen? Are, are young people more robust than perhaps thinking here? Or do you see issues now and perhaps issues being stored up long term? Yeah, absolutely. I do. Um, I guess an example would be when COVID happened and we had our initial lockdown, my first week of counselling, everybody cancelled. And I was like, oh my gosh, what is this going to mean? But by the second week, I think people realised that this wasn't just something that was fleeting. This was going to be here for a while. And what I noticed was that people I hadn't seen for maybe three or four years were contacting me because their issues were representing. So people that had um, some anxious symptoms, the anxiety had increased or people that had depression, uh, the tools that they utilized, like going to the gym or socializing with their friends were no longer available to them. So I definitely think there was a massive spike and an increase in mental health symptoms for people, but also representing symptoms. And I think the whole home learning was really, really challenging for kids, but also for parents that were trying to work as well as, um, you know, assist their children in their learning. And as a result of that, I think probably screen time increased, sleep disturbance increased as a result of it. So I think that there were lots of ripple effects. And I... For example, normally, if I'm working with a student in their final year of high school, we might be focusing on the stress that they experience um, Mm. as a result of exams, or we might be talking about what their future goals are and how to manage those expectations. But there was a massive shift. It was around people just coping with learning from home and missing out on opportunities and not being connected to their community and their supports. So definitely um, there were significant increases. I think that there are people that probably required counselling and weren't able to get it due to massive wait lists at that time. 
And I think there will be ongoing effects and impacts as a result of that. One of the co-hosts on this podcast, Matt B, uh, me and him had a conversation over a year ago now in, in, in April. 2020 when we just had the first month of lockdown he's a qualified social worker and he's been working in a drug and alcohol service for the past couple of years and he was saying that the 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 spikes in drug and alcohol abuse particularly alcohol he'd noticed a massive spike in as you've said there about the regression people Mm. who hadn't drank for a while or reduced because they had nothing else to do were suddenly drinking a lot more but he Mm. also noticed the theme of people who'd never self-identified as having an alcohol issue before drinking more and more until the point where it became an issue family were noticing colleagues were noticing which led Mm. to referrals and interventions and what he was saying is that the combination of isolation, mental health issues worsening, an all-pervading sense of fear and doom and gloom and uncertainty, which was in the national media, international media, should I say, all of those things combined to, to, to leave a very difficult situation. And, and what I notice working in frontline child protection to add to that as well is home isn't a safe place for everybody. And I'm lucky Mm -hmm. that when I think of home, home is a safe place for me. I think of my family. I think of my things. A home is a secure place that I come home to. But Mm. sadly, for many people I work with, and you and many of our listeners will have seen this too, home can be the most dangerous place for people. And we were asking some people, not us as social worker, but society was asking people to stay in a place with the people that pose the most risk. Mm. At the same time, to not have the connections with those who might protect them and see that children not going to school and being seen by teachers, people not going to work and being seen by colleagues, people not Mm. going to hospitals for routine appointments, suddenly accessing therapy and counselling and support services over the phone or over videos where the truth couldn't be seen. It's a difficult combination. Uh, Thankfully, we do appear to be coming out of that. Uh, I know very little services that are no longer doing face-to-face visits now. Uh, All of our schools are back open here in the UK. They have been for for some time now. Mm. But I worry about what's been stored up, just what what was happening for a lot of people that we don't know about. I do. I, yeah. I, and I worry about the long-term issues and obviously your Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, we certainly there's been a media spotlight in Australia on domestic violence mm. and there's been at least one woman a week that is murdered by a partner. I've, I've, um... <laughs> I've read, I'm sure you might help me on this one, but I am pretty confident that I've read that proportionally per capita, Australia has significant issues with male to female domestic violence. Is that right? Yeah, it's massive. I think it's yeah. one of the biggest social issues at the moment. It's really um, concerning. I think with COVID, there was probably an increase, but regardless of that, there is massive um, domestic violence issues in Australia. There needs to be significant change 
in order to help address this issue. It's really concerning. It's certainly what um, a lot of my social work friends and I are having quite robust conversations about, and there's a deep concern in regards to this. Has there been anything identified in terms of cultural or societal drivers that, that have led to Australia having those disproportionately high figures? I couldn't answer that, Vince, because I'm not sure why Australia does have higher figures than other countries do. I think there's some cultural issues around, you know, treatment of women, but I would, I, yeah, I would find that difficult to answer. No, I, yeah, I'm, I'm putting you on the spot here. I'm asking you lots of questions. I'm essentially asking you to solve lots of societal issues because, <laughs> of course, you would say to me, well, if I was able to answer that question, my friend, then I wouldn't be sat here spending my time with you. I'd be in some sort of really high government position. It's just <laughs> I, I did want to ask that because, as I say, I, I had, I do remember reading an article on that some time ago and it was quite, it was quite telling to see that that was so high. Um Let's talk about your specific role then. And, and you'd mentioned earlier about DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy. Mm. Now, here where I practice, DBT is something that I am noticing being used more over probably just over the past couple of years. It's not something that's been an incredibly common form of therapy and intervention. It's namesake, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, as I'm sure you probably see as well, tends to have been one of the most popular forms of therapy. So usually therapy in, in the UK, from what I've experienced, tends to be CBT or psychotherapy. Those tend to be the two major schools, but we are seeing DBT more and more often. So tell me a little bit about DBT and tell me a little bit about your application of it and your training in the model. How did you come to be a practitioner in DBT, Ange? Okay, so um, you would think that my explanation of DBT would be really easy because I've done this for so long. But when I talk about DBT with clients, I normally spend half an hour just explaining to them about the concepts, which I won't yeah. do today. Don't worry. Um, but, <laughs> I'll go um, get a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> um, DBT was developed in 1991 by Marsha Linehan. And the purpose of it was to treat people with borderline personality disorder. Uh, DBT now is used for other um, issues as well, for binge eating and um, it's been some uh, PTSD programs that have utilised DBT. It really encompasses CBT principles and skills. It is... Um, it has some key targets, so to reduce life-threatening behaviours, to manage therapy-interfering behaviours and to improve uh, quality-of-life-interfering behaviours. And the aim of the therapy is for people to have a life worth living and good quality of life and a whole range of skills that they can utilise in different situations. So the skills are around mindfulness, distress tolerance skills, emotion regulation skills, and interpersonal effectiveness skills. The program itself is um, a, normally a 24-week program and it involves 
initially the person is assessed, they do pre-treatment, they then commence the program, which is individual counselling on a weekly basis. They attend a group. If they're an adolescent, their parent would attend the group with them. And there is a, the purpose of the group is psychoeducation to teach the skills. There's a consult group. So all the clinicians involved in the treatment and the group facilitation meet and work as a team to ensure on a weekly basis that the client's needs are getting met or uh, the therapists are held accountable. It's a really, um, it's a really great kind of component of it. Uh, clients are also able to have phone coaching so they can contact their therapist outside of hours to get some additional support in order to put skills in place when required. So it's quite an intense program. And I guess how, what, how I became involved in it was the child and adolescent mental health services, which I was already working for at the time, probably about uh, maybe 11 years ago, I'd guess, um, decided that they were going to do a DBT program. And this really amazing um, clinician uh, developed um, the program and we got this opportunity. There were probably about five clinicians where all we did was DBT. So we just did this program. We'll completely um, emerge in this program, which was just amazing to have that experience. I did that for probably a year and then I... Uh, left the organisation and I was involved in private DBT programs. So an adult one and an adolescent one. I did that until probably about three years ago. I actually did my last session the day before I had my child. But um, now what I do, because I don't have the availability to be able to do phone coaching throughout the night, because that's kind of accessible whenever a client needs it, I do DBT-informed practice. So people will come to me if they don't want to do a group, if they just want to learn the skills, or maybe if somebody has done a group and they just need to really consolidate some of the work they've done, or if somebody uh, maybe... Uh, need some pre-treatment prior to starting a program. So that's kind of my involvement now. It shifted a little to what it was originally. It sounds amazing. It genuinely does because there's such an intense level of support because a lot of feedback that I get from the clients that I support, both the, the children that I'm allocated to as their social worker, but also their parents and wider family members who we connect with because, of course, we work in a holistic manner. We work with children and their families. Oh. A lot of feedback I get, and I wonder if you've had this feedback too, actually. A lot of feedback I get is that some people, a lot of people actually, to, to be frank, a lot of people feel that a standardised approach to counselling that is generally offered in our systems here in this country. So a standardised approach to counselling, which is going and sitting down with somebody in an office or now online and talking about problems and being coached and, and so on and, and, and asked to open up about problems, that doesn't really work for a lot of people um, because... Mm. 
a lot of feedback I'll get is, well, it's just speaking. It's just talking. What What's that doing? So to have what you're seeing, which is looking at things holistically, looking at group work, mm-hmm. being far more targeted and far more intense, it sounds amazing. The question I will ask, though, Ange, is... And I, and I hate to think about this financially, but we 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 do, you know I've learned to think about things sadly from a financial and sort of organisational basis. It must cost a lot more to offer DBT, given the intensity and given the one-to-one time and given the practitioners. How, how is that funding justified? Is that funding hard to come by? Is it easy to come by? Is there any risks that that funding's withdrawn because it's such a intense course? Is it difficult in a financial sense to commit that and offer it to everybody that needs it? I think um, government organisations are more willing to put the funding in to DBT programs because the results are so good. And the the people that do DBT will often have multiple hospital admissions or many presentations to mental health services. So as a result of providing the funding for this intense therapeutic intervention in the long term, it ends up a more efficient and effective way to treat people. So I think that there is funding that there is funding that's available. And I think that there are more programs in saying that there's not enough. I mean, the wait lists are massive for DBT and sometimes people opt to do it privately. It's really expensive to do it privately because people have to pay for a group and then they have to pay for regular um, individual sessions. So it's a expensive option. And even the private groups are often full with very long wait lists. It's a very in-demand um, therapy at the moment. I think that um, there needs to probably be more programs and more funding. I think that's always yeah. a bit of an issue. But I think that definitely because it's evidence-based and the outcomes are very good that there has been, you know, more of a focus on that for different organisations. I always think when it comes to funding on these things, I, I mean, I, I ask this question, but I don't, I don't personally b- b- believe that everything should be quantified and costed because uh, firstly, you can't put a cost and you can't quantify people's happiness and people's well-being. Mm. Well, I say people can. Of course you can, but we I don't believe you. Of course, we sadly know that we live in a society where, where people do do that. But I think uh, if you look, even if you were to think about it on a financial basis, let's say, okay, we're thinking about this on a financial basis, that this is going to cost X amount of time now to give people DBT therapy and give them the support they need. What you find, in my opinion, though, is that money, even if you look at it, Angie, even if you look at it on a purely financial basis alone, by investing money in early intervention or in support services, which makes people better, which makes people feel better and gets them to where they want to be and builds on their strengths and allows them to live the life they want. If you look at the costings 
to society in terms of people might be able to go back to work who weren't able to work. Young people who were heading down a path of worklessness and unemployment and being not in employment, education or training, and then able to engage and commit to society, you will have less reliance upon services long term. You have less reliance upon drug and alcohol services. Mm. You have less reliance upon the police services. You end up with citizens who hopefully go on to contribute more meaningfully and richly to their own family, to their friends, to their communities and to society. It just seems uh, we live in a very short-term society, don't we, where Mm. the quick fix is often taken. But as you're finding out yourself, DBT and therapy, it's not a quick fix. It's not going to sit sit down and talk to somebody for six hours over the course of six weeks. Mm. If you want people to make differences in their lives, you have to commit to that on a long-term basis, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that uh, the reason why I'm so passionate about this treatment is because if people are committed to doing the therapy, and that's a really significant part of the pre-treatment, they have to be committed to doing it. I've never seen somebody that doesn't have great results. So people that had difficulty maintaining relationships have healthy relationships. People that were so emotionally dysregulated, they couldn't go to school or they couldn't go to work. They now can maintain employment. People that um, were self-harming on a daily basis, no longer self-harming. It's really significant, the results that people get if they're committed to doing this therapeutic intervention. It does. It does make a difference, doesn't it, when people get the right level of support? And now I've already worked with a, a, a small handful of clients that have done DBT. Certainly not enough clients to give an, an informed opinion on its its wide success as you have. But what I have found is. I found a great difference, no matter what form of intervention it is, I found a great difference in interventions that are prescribed to people on a catch-all basis, you know, formulate cookie-cutter approach where someone goes with a problem, okay, this is the hole we're going to fit you in, this is what we can offer you. We can offer you one of two things. You can either have medication, hopefully that fixes your problems, or you can go and you can attend this set course, you know, like I say, six courses or or so on, six sessions or or whatever. That tends Mm. to be what a lot of people are offered. Mm. I have found that a lot of those times when people are offered um, tokenistic support or offered medication without necessarily looking at the underlying issues, yes, medication does work for a lot of people, but I have found time and time again that if the issues that are driving that are driving low mood, depression, and anxiety. If those issues aren't addressed, that that trauma isn't addressed internally, or those environmental factors aren't changed, it it can help people feel better, but it doesn't address the life limiting issues that are holding people back. Um, yeah, I, I certainly there's a there's a massive issue. In, in in my part of the world in, in this country about that lack of targeted individual support that people need. Tell me about the outcomes then, my friend. Tell me about the outcomes you've seen, because you mentioned there about the positive outcomes. On a mm. whole, what kind of differences are you seeing in people's lives after they've gone through a course of DBT that you've helped facilitate? 
Oh, I think that people just have this greater understanding and knowledge of their emotions. I think people are aware of how to accept certain things and make change, but do it in a really skillful, effective way. I think that the improvements in relationships is really significant. A lot of people will have attachment or abandonment issues, but I think that by utilising their interpersonal effectiveness skills, they can really manage the presenting issues that they've experienced. And I guess what clients will say to me is that they do this program and by the time they come to me, they've often done so many different counsellors and seen counselling and seen so many different people. And they're just like, oh, this probably isn't going to work for me. I've tried everything. And then they come and they do this therapy. And if they kind of buy into it and they get the therapy and they implement the skills, life is very, very different. Their ability to be able to manage distress and be mindful and focused on being in the present moment and being aware of their state of mind, all these yeah. kind of elements, just really the outcome is that their life is significantly improved. I actually um, got a text message last week from a client. I worked with her in 2013. She did the program then, uh, one of the private programs I was involved in. And she just said, look, I just need to tell you thank you because my life is really great and it's because wow, of DBT. Yeah. So that's pretty awesome. But that's so common that people just feel like the program has just been so significant in yeah. improving their quality of life. Have you taken much from it personally? I don't want. I don't want to get too deep here, Angela, because this isn't the. This isn't the. This isn't the. Uh, you know, the, the therapist's couch here. I'm not. I, I always worry that I sometimes social work my guests by asking them questions like this, but. <laughs> The reason I ask this is, is you know, I, of course, don't share anything you're uncomfortable sharing, but you've obviously gone through a training program in a very beneficial form of therapy, and you have then gone on to apply that positively in many people's lives. Have you used any of those techniques on yourself? Can you use those techniques on yourself, I suppose? And, and if you have, how has it benefited you personally in terms of your approach to life and your well-being? So that's a really interesting question. And, um, and I say to my clients, a DBT therapist would be hypocritical if they didn't utilise these skills themselves. Good, and good, I, good, good. That's what I was hoping you would say. <laughs> So tell me what you've learned from it then, my friend. Uh, look, the concept of mindfulness and just being connected to the present moment, I think is really probably the key thing that I've taken from it. We do lots of mindfulness in it. Also, I think just if I'm teaching a skill to somebody, then um I would want to know that the skill is effective and it works. So I would certainly use the skill myself if I was feeling frustrated in a situation. So for example, if somebody cut me off in traffic, I might yeah. feel frustrated, but I'd be like, okay, you know, this situation is making me feel frustrated. I just need to ground myself, be in the present moment, take some slow, deep breaths, be aware of my state of mind, any vulnerabilities. Am I really tired? Did I not have much sleep last night? So just that ability to be able to look at things from that perspective um, is really useful. And I think like 
I think that everybody should do DBT. Um, Often parents will say Mm. to me, oh, this should just be incorporated into the education system. I think poor teachers have enough that they have to do. But I I, I do (laughs) agree that, you know, these are just life skills and some people haven't had an opportunity to kind of learn these, but I think everybody benefits from using them. Do you think it's possible to be your own therapist? Oh, that's an interesting question. The reason I ask this, the reason I ask this is obviously self-help is a, is, is a massive industry mm. and self-help books appear to be more popular, more popular than ever before. If you have a look on, uh, you know, I, I, I listen to a lot of audio books on Audible. Mm. And I, I do listen to many books that we be considered personal development and self-help books too. But when you look at the Audible bestsellers list and bestsellers and popular, there tends to be a lot of self-help and self-improvement books on mm. there. What I found, though, is for a long time, I for, for, for many years up until probably over the past couple of years, I wasn't really able to take on board much of the advice that I was reading mm. um, because I wasn't in the right frame of mind. No matter how much I tried myself, I wasn't ready. More recently, over the past couple of years, I have been a better frame of mind and I've, I've never, you know, shared a personal point. I've, I've never accessed therapy mm. or anything like that. I've never been in a position where I've ever felt it was necessary for me or somebody else has said that it was necessary for me. But for many years, I tried to sort of be my own therapist. I tried to instill things I was learning, such as mindfulness, CBT, distraction therapies, and so on. And it never really worked for me until I think I was mature enough and it just something clicked, something changed about my approach to life. I think I became more grounded and stoic and I was just able to let the little things go and that changed things a lot for me a couple of years back. Do you think it's possible for people to be their own therapist and sort of take on board the kind of things that you're teaching people or will better results always come when you have the accountability and support of another person with you along the way? Well, to be honest, it doesn't apply to me in the sense of that I've never needed to access therapy. So um, I think that for me, listening to audiobooks and self-help books is interesting and useful and I learn different tools. But I do think that if I was doing supervision with a social worker that was going through challenges themselves, then I would always recommend that they seek therapeutic support if required because I think that that different perspective and that uh, supportive counselling environment uh, is probably essential for people that are going through significant issues. So I think people should lean into support systems or access therapy if they require it, if it kind of mm. is in that stage where, you know, there's issues that are impacting on their daily functioning or if they're stuck on something and they need to kind of get help processing it or working through it. How do you think people, how do you think people can work out 
when is the right time to ask for help? Again, I'm asking a lot of big questions here, Andrew. I'm just fleshing this out, my friend. But uh, when, what do you think are warning signs that people should perhaps take on board and realise um, that now's the time I need something? Or conversely, when do you think people perhaps could seek that support themselves? Is it, is it on individuals to identify that or do you usually have to rely upon people around individuals to make that intervention? Um, I would assume if it was somebody that works in the social work field that they probably would have some insight into what's happening for them and how they're coping with situations. I think that things for people like sleep disturbance or feeling a bit emotionally dysregulated or not feeling motivated or feeling burnt out uh, are probably good indicators that somebody might need a bit of extra support. I think it um, is quite unique to the individual, but I think as social workers, we're often reflective in our practice and I think we also need to be reflective in how we're coping and what's happening for us and how our mental health is. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's a hard one because I think, as you said, it, it it it's very it's very much down to the individual, mm. and it's always. <laughs> I always find a lot of my clients and, and, and friends and family members that have, uh, have suffered with, with mental health problems, it's always quite hard for people to sometimes put into words how they felt because with a physical illness or disability, it can be seen. Of course, people have different pain thresholds and so on, but it, it can be seen by other people. It can be diagnosed and so forth. But... I found that a lot of people struggle to sometimes identify, well, what's a, what's normal? What's a normal way to feel? What's a baseline to feel? And mm. what is a natural emotion? Because everybody feels low. Everybody feels upset. Mm. Everybody gets pissed off. And, and I found that a lot of my clients that I've supported and a lot of friends of families have sometimes struggled to differentiate when it comes to sort of emotional well-being, unless it's extreme, unless it's extreme manifestations such as hallucinations, self-harm and suicide attempts and so on. A lot of people have struggled to decide, well, what's what's normal? What's a normal part of feeling low just about my life isn't great? Because, of course, feeling low and in a low mood, Ange, can be a motivator. You know, a lot of the times I felt low and upset and it's been because I've been in a job that was stressing me out. It's because I've been in a relationship years ago that wasn't good for me. It's because I mm. haven't been eating healthy, because I've been drinking too much, because I've been smoking, because I haven't been getting out, I haven't been active, I haven't been getting sunshine. And a lot of that low, a lot of the low mood that I've experienced personally, you know, ha- has been because of things like a change of environmental. And, and I, but I have found that a lot of people I've supported have struggled to firstly identify what's a baseline in terms of how I should feel, and secondly, to, to express that adequately in words because it can be incredibly difficult. And coming back to what we were talking about earlier as well, if we subscribe to the theory of anime, then... <sighs> We are not necessarily living in accordance with nature, is is, is how I would put it. So if you look at the things that human beings, if you look at us in an evolutionary evolutionary biological context, 
we shouldn't be eating a lot of the processed foods that we're eating. We are not evolved. We are not developed to be spending eight, nine, 10 hours a day behind computer screens. We are not evolved to be having our connections with more people than ever before, but in more tenuous links. We speak to more people than ever before, but we see people face to face less than ever before. A lot of the things we are meant to be doing as human beings, we aren't doing and it, it can be a struggle, I think. And that, maybe that lends more weight to the argument we were having earlier. Well, actually, if we consider it like this, perhaps it, it is modern society. But but does that kind of make mm. sense, that feeling that, well, if, if you have a look at biologically what we should be doing, uh, we don't live in a society that all, that is always nourishing to our bodies and souls, do we? No, that's right. And I guess um, one of the components of DBT is around um, emotion regulation. So one of their skills, for example, is called Please Master, and it's about treating physical illness, eating nutritious and healthy food, avoiding mind-altering drugs, ensuring that you're getting enough sleep, getting exercise every day doing something productive, so building mastery. And um, I guess that just translates to in our life, there probably is a lot of things that we can do that will help us feel like we can manage and regulate our emotions that we can you know have a good balance and self-care and social connectivity and those things I think will bring people closer to their baseline. I think situational things can impact people and if that's occurring then it's that is this manageable what are the options do I need to be accessing support to cope with this situation and Mm. I also think if people's daily functioning is affected so they feel like they can't get out of bed or they're feeling like the low moods are lasting for longer or the intensity or the frequency is increasing. Those are the kind of signs that they probably need to link in with their GP and talk about what the treatment options are. In regards to medication, Mm -hmm. I certainly think there's a place for medication, but I just think that's one piece of the puzzle. I think medication alone without therapeutic intervention isn't great. And I do think that there's different treatment options that are better for different people and um, I guess the accessibility to services will also influence that as well you know if somebody lives in a rural area it might not be as easy to get the treatment that they need for somebody that might live in a city a, a, a lot of again um, you know, I've worked with a hell of a lot of clients who have been prescribed antidepressants uh, and I have uh, got a lot of friends and family members who have been diagnosed with similar medication over the years and and, and currently too uh, a lot of people I know take just continue to take um, antidepressants and, and other medications in relation to mental health needs mm. a significant proportion of those people have told me a, a similar eerily well, and these people don't know each other a lot of these people don't know each other and would have no no way of knowing they told me the same thing but I get the same theme time and time again that people are telling me that their medication it, it robs them it robs them of the laws it saves them from the laws but it also robs them of the highs. A lot of people are telling me that 
they don't have the same wide range of emotions. So if we think of, you know, the worst day in the world being a zero and the best day in the world being a 10, they don't have the zeros or the ones or the twos anymore, but they don't have the sevens, eight, nines or tens. Every day is kind of a four. Nothing feels amazing, but nothing feels bad. And a lot of people have shared that they almost feel like a lot of the colours gone out of life and, and things are stable and settled. And, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry to get, get a bit graphic here, but cover your, cover your kids' ears, listeners, if for some reason you're listening to a social work podcast with your kids, which not, I can't imagine many people are. But another common theme that a lot of people have shared with me about antidepressants is, is they find it very difficult to climax during intercourse. Mm. It, it, it does that as well. And then, so when you're talking there about, you know, yes, you know, medication may help, but it's just one small aspect. That is what mm. I am seeing. I mean, just to be clear, none of my none of my clients have ever told me about the, the climax issue, but several of my friends have, have told me, particularly my female mm. friends, have told me that they found it extremely difficult online and possible to climax if they're on certain uh, certain antidepressants, certain medications. So, uh, yeah, mm. what you've said there about that, certainly it helps people, certainly uh, it does help people. But at what expense, at what cost is that coming? Because it does come at a price. And as I say, a, a lot of people that I know personally and professionally have told me that the price is, thank God it has saved them from the terrible days, the dark days when people don't want to get out of bed at best and don't want to live at worst, but it doesn't give them the highs. They don't have, don't have that range and it, it, it does come with a cost. So that's why DBT comes into it because you're looking, you're looking at the wider issues there, aren't you? Not just perhaps medicating and masking for those issues and changing feelings and emotions and chemical balances in the brain, what you're doing as well is you're looking at the approaches, the techniques and the environment. Would that be fair to say, Ange? Absolutely. And in regards to medication, I think that medication should take the edge off the people. Um, but I think that there's concerns if they just feel numb and they yes. don't feel, uh, and, and I would, and my clients certainly when they come to me, if that's the case, I'm like, just go for a medication review just to check that you're on the right dose as well. But I do think that um, there has to be, people have to be able to experience their emotions and learn to cope with them. Yes. But if they're so overwhelming and so intense, yes, of course, medication can assist in stabilizing moods mm. and managing anxiety or depression. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's a really interesting conversation. I guess sometimes I have clients that say they're really opposed to medication because of their experiences have been negative in the past. Certainly there's side effects from having medication. And I've definitely mm -hmm. had clients that have talked about effects on um, their uh, um, their ability to perform or in the bedroom or whatever that may be. So I think that is a concern for people. Mm -hmm. I think that um, people feel like they want to um, live their life, not feel like they're being a zombie through their life as well. So it's just trying to get that balance right between, yes, medication is useful, yes. uh, but... I think it goes hand in hand with therapy and I'd always be concerned if somebody was just taking medication and not engaging in any therapy. Mm. 
I mean, it can. I mean, look, to give the counterbalance and just to be clear to our listeners in terms of my views on my experiences around this, I, I, I know some people very, very close to me who, if not for if not for medication, may very well have taken their lives or, or, or certainly not had a life worth living, if not for antidepressant mm. medication, they could not have gone on and they could not be where they are now. So I, I know for a fact it does make a massive, massive difference to, to Absolutely. many, many people. Absolutely. And you would never promote not having medication course, if somebody requires course. it. Like, yeah, absolutely. And certain mental health issues, people 100% need to be having definitely, medication. Definitely. So if somebody had schizophrenia, you would 100% be having medication. Or if somebody you know might have bipolar, yeah. they may really need to have that medication. So totally supporting medication. Um, yeah, just but, but and we, we can say both, can't we? And I think the point that yes. me and you both experience and are both saying is it can be both. That Look, medication can be amazing. But at the same time, it it isn't for everybody. It does come at a cost. And that's right. In and of itself, it might be all some people need. It certainly might be all some people need. But in and of itself, it isn't the magic bullet that's going to cure everything, which is why. Uh, that just taking that standard approach where I've got problems, well, here, medicate them away, might not work for everybody and could can be counterproductive for some people. That, that's that's fair to say, is it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's let's finish off with some tips, my friend, because I, I do want to counsel myself. I've decided that I am going to be my own counsel. Let's pretend yep. I've decided that I'm good. I've did a diploma in counseling. It was a year-long course, and I would like to go into it further, but the it doesn't perhaps work. Uh, the, the private practice model in this country it isn't set up, so it would be difficult for me to combine with social work. So it's maybe something for the mm. future, but I certainly haven't done anywhere near at your level my friends you're my expert here if i were advising me and and, and, you know in connection our listeners who are listening to the show right now i'm not to scare you but we've got ten thousand listeners in 147 different (laughs) countries and so no pressure my friend um i'm just showing off because the statistics came out last week and i'm like wow i can't believe we've got so many people so there's my little humble brag of the day um Some tips. You talked about some tips that you've taken on board for yourself, such as mindfulness and so on. If you were Mm -hmm. to give me and our listeners one or two tips from DBT, small tips that could make a difference to our lives, what would be some key takeaways that you might be able to advise people, either you know things they can use right away or any books or resources we might perhaps want to go away and read that could be beneficial to our lives and perhaps in, in, in combination with that, our clients' lives too? Okay. Well, I think that what everybody probably should take away is with their emotion regulation, the things that you have control over are having really great sleep hygiene, making sure that you're fueling your body and eating enough food and that you're socially connected and if you're feeling a bit isolated to really link in. I think that it really is about looking after ourselves physically and ourselves emotionally. I think that people need to really carve out time on a daily basis to have self-care. And I think that people um, 
should um, link in to supports as they're required. They're kind of my key emotion regulation if we're looking after ourselves. I think that people need to do meditation and mindfulness on a daily basis. I think these combination of factors just help us to be more emotionally regulated and more connected to the moment. You're so true about sleep hygiene. Like it's the 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 difference I have if I if I sleep five or six hours compared to getting a solid eight hours, the difference in my life is crazy difference. It is wild. Yeah. And what I've learned is, you know, some tips that have worked for me is no electronic devices an hour before I go to bed. Uh, mm-hmm. So no phones in bed. I will sit and I'll, I'll read an old paper book, having a set routine where I go down every single night at the same time and getting up at the same time every day. Now I don't. I sometimes fall out of that routine, and what I've noticed is if I fall out of that routine just one day, it has a knock-on effect and it really messes me up. So if I go to bed at midnight one night instead of nine p.m., which I usually try and do, yeah, it takes me almost a week to get back on track. What I've noticed Mm. as well is if I don't have enough sleep, I crave junk food. I crave sugar rich foods. I crave fatty foods. I make more negative choices in life. I spend more time on my phone. I'm not as clear. I'm not as, uh, I'm not as on the ball. It's a mad difference. The difference at sleep. Cause what I used to do is I used to be in a routine where I would, my free time, I would get at the end of the night. So after my children had gone to bed, I would have two or three hours between sort of 8 PM till 11 PM where I would go on social media, play computer games, watch films, watch Netflix and so on. What I've learned to do instead, perhaps only over the past year really, is get to bed at 9 p.m., but have those hours in the morning. So go to bed at 9, get up at 5 a.m., but have 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. free. And I found that by having my free time in the morning before everybody else is awake in the home, that's time to myself. I can go for a walk. I can I can read. I can write. I can do yoga. I can meditate. I can do productive things. So what you've said there about sleep hygiene is massive. That is massive. Of course, diet affects me a lot as well and exercise, but the one thing mm. that really is the cornerstone to everything else, I found that I can eat badly and I cannot exercise, but if I've had good sleep, I'll be fine. However, if I've had poor sleep, it doesn't matter how much exercise I do, it doesn't how it doesn't matter how well I eat, you can't get that back, can you, if you haven't got good sleep hygiene patterns? I've noticed it's so, so important for everything in my life. Yep, absolutely. And I think it's about that relaxed mind, relaxed body, really um, ensuring that you implement all those strategies that you identified that help with that sleep. Because we know that people that don't sleep well will definitely, uh, their moods will be affected the next day. It's really hard to, you know, have energy and to feel motivated and to concentrate. And that sleep deficit just is hard to ever catch up on. 
Yeah, it makes a big difference. It makes a big difference, my friend. Um, and mm. it has been a pleasure. You have been, you have been our first ever Australian guest on the show, and you, you, you've been superb. You have certainly done the country proud. Thank you ever so much for your detailed insight into DBT. Um, I'm off to get some sleep, and I'm off to practice mindfulness, as you've taught me. Um, before you go, my friend, are there any shout outs you want to give to your friends? Is there any calls out you want to give to people who may be listening to the show or have you any final words of wisdom that you want to impart upon our listeners oh i'd just like to thank you vince for having me i love talking social work and it's been wonderful to have this conversation with you and of course always a shout out to the aussie social workers um yeah Hey, honestly, my friend, the pleasure. People always say this on the show. They always come on the show and say, thank you, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you ever so much. I'm like, yeah, look, honestly, look, it's, it's nice to get that recognition. But honestly, Angel, I would say the same thing to you as I've said to our other guests, my friend. Um, the, the pleasure is all mine. It is people like you and our listeners that make this show so special because if we didn't have lovely guests and co-hosts and people like yourself who come on the show from all over the world and spend your free time with me, we wouldn't have a show. If we didn't have so many listeners all across the globe, we wouldn't have a show either. So I am honoured. I am honoured, humbled and truly grateful to have you on the show today and to also have all our listeners and everybody else on the show. So thank you ever so much for your time, my friend. Thank you. Well, listeners, there we go. Um, thank you ever so much to Ange for coming on the show today. As always, you can support us by leaving a review on iTunes, by getting in touch with any feedback or questions for future shows. You can also get in touch if you would like to come on the show as Ange has done today and be a guest and share your story with the social work world. To do that, you can drop me a message on Facebook instagram or twitter just search for social work tutor you can also drop me an email directly swt at socialworktutor.com if you like the show you can also support us by signing up to be a patron at patreon.com forward slash social work tutor as well as getting early access to all our shows you will also get exclusive access to all of our library shows we have over a hundred legacy shows on there that you can already get on Patreon, as well as having the past main social work tutor podcasts on there. You also have our weekly special Patreon shows, the out of hours shows and our cultural specials such as the Harry Potter show where we are currently halfway through Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. So please do sign up if you can and we will catch you next week. Thank you ever so much. Goodbye. Thank you.